Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 77. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. Also joining us today is Mitch McEwen, principal of McEwen Studio, founder of Superfront, and author of Another Architecture, a blog here on Archonnect. Hey, Mitch. Glad to have you on. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, great to have you back on the show. Thank you. Yeah, it feels like ages since we last spoke. Glad to have you back on. Yeah, I think it was at least a year, maybe more. A year and a half, a and a half? E- even more than a year and a half. That's right, because it was around it was around New Year's, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. January two thousand fifteen. If my Skype history serves me correctly, <laughs> Skype remembers all. So this episode, we wanted to bring Mitch on just to join our general conversation about a few recent news pieces that we've seen crop up kind of around the same issue. There is an article published called The Argument Against Zoning, as it was published on Archonnect, where we discuss a piece that in the context of the so-called 100-year anniversary of zoning, or at least the term zoning being used as a way of dictating land use regulation in city and, and local governments, a lot of these pieces started cropping up of people engaging with zoning issues either on a very local level based on certain cities such as Detroit or New York or LA, and also just more generally, like what is the overall utility and benefit and cons of zoning issues? Of course, a lot of people throw out the various very robust arguments, empirical evidence that have been brought up by economists in the recent past and throughout the 20th century about the various socioeconomic issues that zoning can cause, but also kind of trying to chart a happy medium between the kind of zoning that can actually encourage economic growth and creating both thriving and diverse cities. So we wanted to kind of have a chance to talk about this more generally on the podcast. So to start off, why don't we go and first discuss the article about um, the 100-year anniversary of zoning that kind of takes a look specifically at New York City. Who here had very strong reactions to this article in either the in, in, in any way? Because I, I think this was kind of put up to provoke people in, in this kind of discourse. I enjoyed that the author, Justin Fox, was a little snarky in a way that's like, yeah, happy birthday, but I can't say I'm happy with you entirely zoning. <laughs> like, you know, there's there's sort of an attitude of, yeah, there's some good things that go along with zoning, but let's be very realistic that there's a lot of crap in a lot of ways that zoning has been used as a bludgeon. And I think every city has examples of, of that. So I liked that it was a, it was a very irreverent article in a lot of ways. I thought he was a clown, actually. (laughs) (laughs) How so? You know, I read read it and a couple of things that caught me right off guard is the timidity of a kind of of an individual such as this guy who writes for uh, Bloomberg and has written for other business publications. And his lack of I think if you're if you call out zoning as being inherently racist or have uh, inherently racist past, you're kind of like pushed off into the margins. And uh, and I think his timidity around describing what has happened and in kind of very minorities. Well, it's been zoning has really been used as a as a tool for you know bludgeoning uh, black people in this country for a long time. And he doesn't even just kind of very thinly describes and very less than honest terms uh, about what really has gone on in this country. And it's just kind of, you know, I think the problem I have with people that write about stuff like this is that it's uh there's zoning is there's problems with zoning, so let's just get rid of zoning. I think that the other piece that you talk about kind of goes in that direction as well. And yeah, there's thing there's problems with zoning, but you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater because there's a problem with how it's being done. You solve the problems and fix it. It's so tricky because zoning is almost inherently so wonky as a topic, mm-hmm. right? I mean, exactly. it's hard enough to talk about architecture. We get lost in, in language that the general public can't relate to. So when you're talking about zoning, it's even it's even worse generally. So, I mean, I appreciate a tone of something like this in, in Bloomberg because it's at least 
sort of being polemical in a way that folks outside of the urban planning and the architecture realms can can read it and, and see that there's drama here. But at the same time, you know, I think that it is important to mark, you know, a hundred years of zoning as a moment to maybe, you know, question critically what it is that, that zoning has achieved and what it what it means as a tool. And one of the things that New York City that's so specifically complicated in New York City is that at the same time that you have zoning, you also have rent control and you have the largest public housing stock in the country. Right. So it's actually, I mean, New York City is this incredibly vibrant city. It's dynamic. It's got neighborhoods and diversity and different scales. Is that because of rent control? Is it because of public housing? Is it because of zoning? We don't, we don't have like a control case to really, you know, say, except maybe these kind of rough comparisons when we start comparing New York to LA or San Francisco. So I, I do think it's important to, to, to look at these things, you know, as part of a larger American story, which is hard to do. I think that's what's so important when we compare this piece to the uh, one that was written for the LA Times, which was a, an op-ed written by both Mott Smith, who's a developer here in Los Angeles, as well as Mark Valianatos, who teaches at Oxy. Because their position with zoning was that, for Mitch, kind of the reasons you brought up, is that we have this opportunity to do so much good with zoning that we can create these regulations that help create very much from the bottom up a positive city scenario. But that kind of doesn't work as soon as there's no bottom to start with as soon as you have to kind of work with something that already exists and trying to apply rules that often take decades as we're experiencing in Los Angeles to kind of revise and create more um, fluent versions of for the current urban situation that usually holds us back. This balance of not only having the rules be flexible and strong enough to uphold like a positive urban environment, but also like knowing when that they can actually be best applied, whether there's only certain things that will apply when new areas are being developed versus infill development and um, overall densification of, of certain cities, because cities will always change and the rules can't be set in stone all the time. They have to constantly be changing, which is already inherently opposed to the very idea of having something like these are the zoning laws. So you can't just rely on that. So Amelia, you're right that Cities change so constantly. And that I think um, in a lot of the articles on zoning we've been talking about lately, that's been one of the things that has come up that I would like to point to commenter LIMX said this, which I think is really well stated. So I'm just going to quote him or her directly. The flaw in this current civic thinking seems to be, hey, here's a successful neighborhood. Let's build a bunch of crap on top of it. Like that's the developer attitude. Let's build a bunch of crap here where something good is already going on. And back when we had the um, Arconnect Sessions discussion of queer space with James Rojas, he spoke about how these very successful urban spaces in the 70s in LA then became, you know, they don't just become duplicated they become, it's almost like, sorry to say this, but like developers are like a cancer on top of something that's already an authentic urban experience. And I think that this, this notion that cities constantly change is, is part of that, that we have to accept. But it also would be nice to just look at something that's working and say, how can we replicate this without destroying it? But what is, uh, what is, is there anything out there that is working? <laughs> <laughs> Are you talking about strictly in an American context or? Yeah, I mean, because bringing in a European context and it just doesn't seem to work for anybody. But because I think in a lot of in a lot of ways, I was thinking about while you're having this conversation, I'm thinking about, well, you know, in, in Minneapolis, we have neighborhoods. Um, we have 81 different neighborhoods and we each get a, a, a pot of money to kind of do some things in the community. And we have some local control in each neighborhood about what we want to have in that neighborhood and what we don't want to have. And there's an overall zoning plan, but we have some measure of kind of autonomy and ownership of what can happen. And we could put pressure on our, our council members 
to reject certain things. And we can kind of control that. But again, it's a political tool. And if the, you know, if the richer neighborhoods in Minneapolis don't want a certain thing there, they have the political tools and the structure to kind of push that out of the neighborhood. And it's been done. You know, we have gerrymandering, but we have like a gerrymandering <laughs> zoning form that happens because it's there, no one wants to lose. Everybody wants to win. And then there's no one and everyone's win is a, is a loss for somebody and everybody's loss is a win for someone else. I mean, so it doesn't seem like there's ever any way to kind of layer a zoning plan across the top of something and have it, you know, well, some of these neighborhoods got to have some some things happen here and others have to have it happen here. And it may not be the best benefit for every for that particular area, but it's a benefit for the entire community. And it doesn't seem like there's ever a sense of, you know, there's like we're in this together. It's like, oh, well, that neighborhood is going to get fucked because we know that the history of Minneapolis is that North Minneapolis always gets fucked. And no one ever cares about North Minneapolis. They only care about what happens by the lakes. They only care about what happens in, you know, the the neighborhoods that really contribute financially to the city. So I'm just trying to figure out what is the what is a successful zoning plan in the United States that we can look to model to. I mean, for me, Ken, this is a weird answer to your question, but I think one of the most successful models that we have is actually environmental regulation. If you think about the EPA and the implications of things like the Clean Water Act, for example, on American waterways and how sewage is processed and combined sewer overflow being something that actually has to be treated in a city, you know, there are major impacts of, of you know, the EPA on our cities. So, and I think we're still seeing the benefits of that in terms of, you know, LA working on its river again and Chicago working on its, its river. So I would hope that zoning would actually become something closer to an environmental regulation, right? I mean, if it does continue to regulate urban space, that I think a lot of what we're used to in terms of land use categories comes from a 19th century model of what industry means and what residential means and, you know, like threatening others and the kind of xenophobia built into that. But the pieces of that 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 remain beyond just the kind of sculpting of the built environment along the whims of, you know, different moments in time. The pieces of that that remain really critical, I think, are around, you know, noxious uses and toxins and where we can let certain you know, trucks idle and where we don't let them idle. Like I would, I would like to see a model of zoning that actually treats environmental matter as something that, that is material. And I think in order for something like that shift to happen in zoning, we do have to get rid of a lot of the, the sense of what zoning is for. We've got a lot of residual 19th century stuff left in it still. So I would respond to, to that by saying I, I agree, yes, that I think zoning is such a big topic that most people can't really get their head around it. But for most people, if you ask about environmental regulation, they agree that, yeah, that's pretty much a good thing for everyone. And I would also parallel with that transit and movement through cities. I mean, I think everyone can agree that moving a lot of people through cities is it, that movement is good, that movement leads to good things in economic, social, cultural, all kinds of ways. But then when you bring up transit, people tend to, that one of the main arguments is always, oh, but you know, bus fares never pay for themselves. Transit, transit companies, you can't make a profit running a bus. And similar to environmental issues, I would like cities to start to say, yeah, that doesn't matter. Sometimes making a profit or making, you know, something running efficiently. And that's not the point. The greater benefit of the environmental regulations or the good transit options is the point of it, even if they don't make a profit. I mean, I think since Reagan, I would say since Reagan, people just have this whole attitude that, oh, we should run government like a business. And if we're not making money, off it, it's not useful. And that's just a very backwards attitude. 
in my mind. And that's the scary thing about the Bloomberg article is to the extent it's coming from this kind of libertarian sense of get rid of all the government regulations and zoning is just part of that. Right. Yeah. Right. Because the market, you know, the market has to make a dollar, right? And if the market can't make a buck, why would we do anything? <laughs> well, I think there has to be some integration as well with like an overall strategic urban plan that might not be so specific in terms of land use, but just in what direction the city wants to grow in. And Don, I think that incorporates your idea of transit planning in it for a very like explicit way of just like, where are the places that we know we want people to be able to access through the means that we can give them with public transit and such? And, and transit so easily then also aligns with environmental considerations. What I found interesting was that there was also, this wasn't posted to the Arconnect News, but it came up recently in the last couple of weeks that Detroit is operating this pink zoning initiative which Mitch, maybe you can tell us a little bit about. But what, how I understand it is that it's kind of like a almost reverse engineering zoning question, where instead of the urban planners in the city trying to rewrite the zoning laws for the abstract idea of what they think the better city could be or the better zoning laws could be, they instead just design a like prototype street that has businesses and mixed use and it is very idealistic, and then try to just make that a reality through perhaps whatever means they can. Can you tell us a little bit more about it, or did, is that kind of a fair summation? You think? That's what I've read and and that's what I've what I've heard from the planners here and I don't really have much inside info to give you on that except I I could say that that prototyping aspect is something that is sort of planning wide here in Detroit that that's that's an approach that the chair of urban planning Maurice Cox as someone who has an architecture background and became a planner I think that that sort of prototyping as a method is really important here but to me the funny thing about that as a story for zoning and pink zoning is that actually that's the way that zoning tends to happen anyways. You know, if you look at the zoning that I know best is more than New York City zoning because I worked for city planning and I was in New York for 10 years. And if you look at, you know, the, the major New York City rezoning episodes like 1961, leading up to that, you had at least 10 years of business groups putting together research on zoning and attempting to project population and project business growth. And you had the Chamber of Commerce basically writing out what the future of manufacturing would be. And of course, they had these awful notions of what the zone needed needed to be because they thought manufacturing was going to keep increasing in the city. So so I think what's exciting about Detroit is that this kind of very typical zoning exercise, actually, I mean, that's sort of how cities tend to rezone as you go through an exercise like this. But what's different in Detroit is that it's sort of everyday people, small businesses, existing residents and, and neighbors are the folks at the table rather than a chamber of commerce. That's the big shift here. I feel that's interesting, too, because it kind of brings up the idea of what the planner should be educated in. If if so, if the, you know, the designers and the architects creating these space prototypes are then the ones kind of pushing the planning into one direction, because as far as I know, most planning degrees and most planning education in the U.S. is much more tailored to that kind of rule-based methodology and, and knowing the policy and very wonky, as we kind of set out, and as opposed to other planning traditions that might focus more explicitly on design or actual urbanism, where it kind of brings up this difficulty of consolidating those two ideas, where you want to have these like overwhelming rules that can dictate how things work, while also knowing on the very, very minute level down to the, the brick or the corner curb or however, how things actually pan out and how it creates this really difficult issue, especially in cases like LA, which mentioned, and you brought this up, it's like, that's pretty much how just things work. But also because the zoning is so Byzantine that people just end up getting, they can't make anything work with the current laws. And so that's why they just have a lot of variances for anything that they try to propose. It's just kind of a way of life, which creates not only a huge gridlock for any planning measure, but also just is dissuading of people to ever try to get certain projects done or it allows certain projects to get through at the expense of others. 
So I can't help but that reminds me of the uh, and I'm I'm noting all these uh, these uh, former or previous podcasts that we did. But sessions 13, when we spoke with Elizabeth Timmy, and that would have been longer ago than we spoke with you last, Mitch. So I'm thinking we need to check in with Elizabeth again, because she was at that time working on the L.A. Rezone initiative and talking about how it's just such a, excuse the language, it's such a clusterfuck to try to deal with rewriting a zoning code and deal with all of these these complexities of use. And that's a really good podcast sessions to listen to. But I wanted to ask you guys as architects, because I'm afraid at this point in the podcast, maybe we've lost all of our young idealistic architect listeners because they don't know why the hell we're talking about zoning. Like, how would you bring this conversation to a realm that a, an architecture student would understand and see how this would impact what they want to do with design in the future. I mean, I teach at University of Michigan now, and I, I teach a seminar called The Zoning of Things, where I... I oh, neat. Yeah, yeah, it is neat. I think it's That neat. sounds amazing. It's super nerdy. <laughs> it's like we mix a lot of Foucault, the order of things is kind of the reference for the course title. So we have a number uh-huh. Of, uh-huh. of chapters there. And then we do New York City zoning by a couple historical moments and then various kind of, you know, theories of urbanism and and a couple studies here in Detroit, Gross Point and Detroit. And the students, I mean, my seminar is already full, actually, for the fall. So the students are actually really, the ones that I know here are really interested in zoning. And they came up with, with bizarre computational projects or very wonderful historical projects. One of my students who's from Detroit did this series of beautiful maps about the, the parking, the zoning of parking in Detroit and was able to locate a comparison to LA where actually the parking requirements are were twice in Detroit, what they were in LA in the similar time span after World War II. So it's like you just see in that one metric, the, awesome. the crushing of the downtown and the morphing of the city, right? you know? So no, I think the young architects are actually, because it's it's something that skips scales, you know, it, it's relevant to understanding the contemporary city, which is of course important, but it's also this weird tool that architects, you know, once they, they get a sense of how to read it and how to work with it, can gain a lot of agency over large territory, which I think is, is interesting for architects today, and maybe in a different reason, for, for different reasons than it might've been interesting a couple decades ago. Well, and that to me, that that sense of agency that a young architect can have over being able to change things and not have to just, you know, follow the rules just because the rules have always been there. That's that sense of agency is what I would hope that young architects would take out of this discussion is, yeah, you can ask questions about everything and, and see what you can get to. Well, I don't want to presume what Jeff Manow's premise was for writing this piece, but I could say one of those questions that, that brings in the zoning debate in a decidedly, uh, <laughs> at the risk of sounding super old, youth-oriented way. <laughs> um, we published this uh, other piece by Jeff uh, on the site, originally published on his blog, about Pokemon Go bringing up all of these issues of zoning for AR or VR purposes, where not explicitly uh, as if, you know, you're going to trespass on someone's lawn because there's a Pokemon there. But the idea that you through geotags or or simply these new AR initiatives or relatively new AR initiatives and AR gaming, that people's private property can have in some way an AR or VR influence or AR or VR presence that might not be wanted and might bring them attention that they might not have solicited. And so there was this, this piece kind of floats the idea that maybe in the very near future, we will require virtual zoning laws that say what can be allowed, what, what virtual and AR 
services and ideas and activities are going to be allowed in certain areas of the city, which is, of course, at this point, like just a fascinating thought experiment. And Jeff is not at all proposing like any type of drastic no Pokemon <laughs> zoning for certain areas or such like that, because of, of course, most of the games takes place in, in public spaces. But it's a fascinating question. And I'm sure something that people are going to be thinking more about in the near future. I agree. And the part that piqued my interest the most was the bit about, you know, could you have a virtual billboard on your house? Mm -hmm. <laughs> one that only existed in augmented reality. And how would your neighbors feel about that? And yeah, that I think that's a fascinating new realm we're getting into. So given that it takes 20 years to rewrite a zoning code already, <laughs> now that we throw the virtual on top of it, yeah. Totally. Well, yeah, just as far as the Pokemon, I mean, there are precedents if we think of the Pokemon as a media and a media that kind of tends towards a certain interaction between people, then music might be a precedent or dancing might be a precedent to understand that. And that that's something that, that I've been interested in writing about in terms of New York City. There is still on the books in New York City, there's a cabaret law that was written two years after zoning emerged in 1960, or no, after an early version of zoning that basically was part of a fear about cabarets and the kind of racially integrated culture of cabarets taking over New York City. And so, you know, this idea that there are certain ways that we move our body and interact with each other that might be inappropriate, I think is something to be to be really, you know, concerned about and wary of and how it operates within the terms of, of zoning. Well, we also wanted to bring into the discussion for this podcast episode something completely unrelated to zoning. Although if someone wants to make an argument as to how it's very related to zoning, I would love to hear that. We recently saw the trailer, the official trailer for the REM documentary. Documentary is used very loosely here, but this is the feature-length film made by Thomas Kohlhaas, Rem's son, who's a filmmaker, and it's going to debut at the Venice Film Festival in September. We recently posted the trailer to the Archonnect News and included with uh, Oliver Wainwright's review of the film for The Guardian. And uh, it's it's a pretty interesting trailer. I think that there's like, without having the privilege of being able to have seen the whole film, there's definitely a certain feel to it that is not necessarily aligned with, you know, a strong-headed documentarian's view where it's going to be a little bit more critical. This seems to be very much something that is kind of like, my dad, who is this mystery? I'm only going to depict him in very thoughtful, lens flare-ridden things. Um, <laughs> so it, it seems to be, at least from my understanding and from Oliver Wainwright's review, something of a non-critical item, which doesn't mean it won't have any value, but I was, I was interested in what y'all thought of the, of the trailer so far as that's all we have to see right now. Just a hot take, 15-second opinion if you had a chance <laughs> to see it. Well, I, I think there are two trailers, right? Yes. The, the first one was all parkour in REM buildings, <laughs> which is good and interesting. But then the second one shows, and, and the article talked a little bit about how basically the film is entirely the back of REM's head as Tomas follows him as he just jets around the world from place to place and building to building and institution to institution. And I find that as a film device interesting. And I think it could actually be fascinating as a sort of very personal view of what a person goes through in a day of their life. But in terms of the uh, the criticality towards the architecture, I don't think we're going to get that at all. I think this is going to be a very, uh, you know, a portrait by a family member. I want us to have someone write a review who has no idea who Rem Kolhas is. Just like oh. no idea. And even if they did, just would not care. Just like you tell them right before they saw the film, like, oh, he's like one of the foremost architects practicing today, blah, 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 blah. They'd be like, sure. 
that reminds me totally random. But did you see that clip from the Kardashians where she's talking about reading about? <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, that made the rounds. <laughs> so okay, so which is yes. an architect. Mitch, yes. Mitch. Okay, yes. we're in LA. Maybe uh-huh. we can make this happen where we get the Jenners. Oh my God! To do a mass review of I think this the Kardashians. Film. The, sorry, excuse me, the Kar- yes. Kardashians. That's how out of out of touch I am. We get the Kardashians to do a review. Perfect. Of this film. We do Perfect. a screening at their home. And uh, yeah, let's see if we can make this happen. Make that happen. Has anybody started a, is there a, a Le Corvoisier uh, Twitter account yet? Oh, wait, I'm on it. The architecture Twitter scene is starting to get interesting. Yes, it is. So let's Birds see. Let's see if there is one by uh, by the time this airs. Oh. Any other thoughts on the trailer, but while you're on it? I, you know, I mean, personally, I, I thought it, it looked intriguing. It's really hard to comment on this short clips that the the two trailers which were both quite short and quite different but there's something about rem cool houses or oma's aesthetic style that i've always been really drawn to and i think it's so unique and i it would have been nice to kind of see that that highly unique style somehow translated into film but i know that you know his son is a different person with a different sense of style so it's probably not realistic but yeah I'm, i'm looking forward to seeing it regardless you know, unfortunately, if this is going to become a, val- a Valentine from a son to his father, then it says a lot about their relationship that his son has to put together a film to kind of show his appreciation of his dad. Hopefully there's more architecture in here and more insight than he provided at the AIA National about his yeah. work. But I will <laughs> note that I did notice on the second trailer that he is wearing the glasses I did get from the couch at the AIA <gasps> National. And so... Wow, <laughs> I didn't notice that. Now I have to go back and watch it again. Yeah, he has a cool pair of glasses. They're very interesting. <laughs> yeah, but like you said, he probably has 50 pairs of those that he then yeah. leaves behind everywhere he goes. <laughs> they're super cheap, but they're super like... Dutch pragmatist. Yeah, very Dutch, Dutch pragmatist. pragmatist. Yeah. 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 Kind of Ikea plus. <laughs> you know, I, I'm I'm glad that this is actually done because I just don't... There's such a... I think there's a misconception about architects in general. And, you know, the the one about Khan was a little bit of a downer because it showed him to be much more of a detached parent. Even though I talked about the architecture, it didn't really talk about the architecture. It was really about this son coming to terms with his relationship with his dad. And that's why I'm a little leery of this one because it's so reverential. It's At least it comes off that way and the kind of the really close-up shots of his father and, you know, the kind of, the roman- you know, the idea of the romantic kind of connection between the father and son. I There would be interesting to have a little bit more critical piece and, you know, on other architects, you know, it would have been great if Zaha had done one before she passed away or someone who did that for her. But the more we can see architects in a, a positive lens rather than, you know, as caricatures done in fiction, it would be, I think it would kind of help the profession out a little bit more and maybe we wouldn't be seen as such assholes. But then I could be wrong too. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point, Ken. You know, considering this film is being done by his son, which I assume is is uh, relatively close to him personally, it would be nice to see that this is a very personal look at at a person that is known for his work from a not so personal perspective. Since Ken mentioned my architect, and I just want to say that the I think that film has that wonderful crescendo with the the project in Bangladesh at the end. So as far as films that that if that is a you know comparison, that uh, I don't know. I, I think I think that's a has a beautiful way of showing the projects without making it about the projects. If anything, Ken, I also think that this can be seen as at least one step closer to the direction of general audience in that it's 
not being screened at a or not it's not debuting at an exclusively architectural kind of venue or an architectural film festival source but it's this kind of the venice film festival so something still quite exclusive but nonetheless not as uh, excluding as something explicitly for architects or for architectural film and i like the uh, the one trailer with the person moving through the space um whether or not that's parkour i don't i don't know i mean it certainly seemed more I think they describe it as free running yeah it was a little but it was still elegant in in the sense that this person was kind of utilizing a space that really doesn't get it wasn't intended for that and it kind of gives you a sense of you know anyone moving through space is actually very fascinating to me so to see that kind of movement through space which is very different than we normally move through space adds something of value i'm just eager for the first daughter to do a film about her architect parent (laughs) and see see what kind of viewpoint we get from that totally All right. Well, I think we can wrap up this episode. Thanks to everyone out there listening. And Mitch, thanks so much for joining us again. My pleasure. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcConnect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com with questions or suggestions or feedback. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. And we'll uh, talk to you guys next week.